Well, we're getting towards the end of uh, Job, and tonight we're reading from chapter 40, going through to uh, verse 6 of chapter 42. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's, and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendour, and clothe yourself in honour and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins. What power in the muscles of its belly. The tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs like rods of iron. It ranks first among the works of God. Yet its maker can approach it with his sword. The hills bring it their produce. And all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plant it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow. The poplars by the stream surround it. A raging river does not alarm it. It is secure that the Jordan should surge against its mouth. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook? or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird? Or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Will traders barter for it? Can they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons? or its head with fishing spears. If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armour? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with its fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils, as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breath 
sets coals ablaze and flames dart from its mouth. Strength resides in its neck. Dismay goes before it. The folds of its flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. Its chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches it has no effect, nor does the spear, or the dart, or the javelin. Iron it treats like straw, and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make it flee. Sling stones are like chaff to it. A club seems to it but a piece of straw. It laughs at the rattling of the lance. Its undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. It makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is its equal. A creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is king over all that are proud. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the second reading is from chapter four of Mark. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. So the penultimate message on Job. And uh, gee, I love this text. Two beasts, behemoth, Leviathan, what do you do with them? I hope it'll be clear in a few moments' time. Shall we pray? Father, we may not be able to trace your hand, but we trust your heart. So speak to us in Jesus' name and in the power of your spirit. Amen. I'm here to admit to you that I've lost my faith, said Prince Philip in season three of The Crown. Season four starts tonight little Netflix advertisement there. Prince Philip said uh, this to a bunch of burnt-out Anglican ministers, and I say that like there's another kind. 
I'm here to admit that I've lost my faith, he says, and without it, what is there? Uh, the Duke of Edinburgh is restless of an age, and he was wondering if the answer to living was in the moon landing, 1969. But no, he says uh, to the clergy, the loneliness, the emptiness, and the anticlimax of going all the way to the moon to find nothing but haunting desolation, ghostly silence, gloom, that's what losing faith is, as opposed to finding wonder, ecstasy, the miracle of divine creation, that's Job, God's design and purpose. Philip says, what am I trying to say? It's very vulnerable in this moment. I'm trying to say that the solution to our problems is not in the ingenuity of the rocket or the science or the technology or even the bravery. He said the, the answer is here or here or wherever it is that faith resides. And so, Dean Woods, having ridiculed you for what you and these poor blocked souls were trying to achieve here in St. George's House, I now, I now find myself full of respect and admiration and not a small part of desperation as I come to say, help, help me. Job is help. It's one of the most unsettling stories most ancient stories ever told. Dr. Timothy Keller writes, the book of Job faces the issue of suffering with more emotional realism, intellectual integrity and practical wisdom than any other book of the Bible. Unsettling and yet profoundly helpful. As a pastor, I've sat with some of you through suffering, not all of you and some of you, not enough. And I've seen some amazing patience and endurance, even patience with your worthless physician friends, people who came to heal but ended up only hurting. And sorry if I've ever been that person for you. I see patience. I don't see as much divine challenge. I'm not sure why. You know, the Psalms are full of it. Where are you? What are you doing? This ain't right. Certainly not as much as Job did, and uh, you know maybe it's because his friends muddled it, or maybe he didn't have cl the clarity of the gospel. I'm not sure, but in chapter 31, verse 35, he famously says, and maybe it's the most important passage in, in Job's words, when he says, I here now sign my defense. You know, I rest my case. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his in writing. Let him write down what his problem is with me, and surely I'll wear it like a crown. This is his challenge to God. Now, if you did that, what would you want to hear from God? Job is a wealthy man, but he loses everything and he doesn't know why. The reader knows why, namely a cynic, Satan, has claimed that Job only fears God for the stuff. You take away the stuff and he'll do what everybody does. He'll walk away. That happens all the time. You know it. You see it. And so the hedge, the hedge goes down. The stuff gets taken away in a tsunami of pain. Job sees no rhyme, no reason, no method in the madness. 
It's like he's sitting down with the jigsaw of his life and he's saying the pieces don't fit, the puzzle's faulty. His friends say, no, the puzzle's not faulty. you just got to make them fit. It's probably because, it is because you've sinned. That's the reason why you're suffering so. Job validates our lived experience where you appear to get nothing from God and nothing but talk from your friends. It's hard. Now, Job hadn't sinned, not even with this. You find that out next week. But he does think God is in the wrong, so he just is skating to the edge. In fact, God will say to him in 40 verse 8, tell me, would you condemn me to justify yourself? People are doing that all the time when they discuss God. Job wants three things. One, he wants God to show up. He gets that, finally. That's last week. Secondly, he wants vindication. He gets that. That's next week. And thirdly, he wants an explanation. But as they say, two out of three ain't bad. Today, God shows up a second time. We heard the first time last week. The Lord answered Job out of the storm, out of a whirlwind a second time. In chapter 40, verse 7, and he says to Job a second time, brace yourself like a man on your feet. I will question you and you will answer me. God does not treat Job as a snowflake. Now, you might not like God's answer. I mean, if this were a movie, uh, would you want your money back? Job gets no explanation. Do you find that satisfying? In fact, I'm going to pop it up on Facebook tonight. Do you find the ending of Job satisfying? And you watch the answers, if you're friends with me. Perhaps I'll make it public. Well, the important thing to say is that Job finds it satisfying. You might not find it satisfying, but the, the guy who suffers finds it satisfying. In fact, all his questions melt away. He says in 42 verse 5, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Perhaps you might say before it was all talk, but something new happened out of the suffering. Something, he was taken somewhere. Something beautiful took place. Frederick Beekner wrote this, it could sum up these texts. He said, here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen, do not be afraid. So in our text today, we get two questions, I believe, basically from God to Job, and they're on page 10 of your zine. With respect to justice, Job, are you, are you above and across it all? Is that you? He invites Job to consider the proud and the wicked. And with respect to fear, he says to Job, can you put a leash on what is most terrifying? And he invites Job to look at the behemoth and consider the Leviathan. And lastly, what happens if you meet this God? And then we're going to round it off by singing How Great Thou Art, which would seem to me is appropriate. So the first seven verses of our text tonight, with respect to justice, Job, are you above and across it all? A summary of last week, if you weren't here, in Job, in chapter 38, God finally shows up. He's been silent all along. Job doesn't find God. God finds him. Said, by the way, every single person who's been born from above. Job doesn't find God. God finds him. Job wants to give God a piece of his mind. Job... God gives Job a piece of his heart. Job wants to pepper God with statements. God 
peppers Job with questions, heavy ones and then playful ones. God takes Job on a disorientating tour through his creation, disorientating in order to get him back on his feet again. Solid, solid ground for wobbly feet. And if you were here you, last week, you realised that God's questions are not so much about his control over creation, which is the classic reading of this, but it's not a careful reading. A classic reading is God comes up and says, I'm God and you're not, so suck it up, Job. But if you look closely at the questions, that's not what's going on at all. It starts perhaps with his control over creation. Were you there when I created the world, set its foundations? Is that you? But it moves pretty quickly to his loving involvement in it. You know, consider the ravens. You know, they cry out and God feeds them. Exactly what Jesus said, consider the birds of the air. Uh, they know, neither sow nor reap, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. The questions then are humorous in part. Remember the ostrich? <laughs> not smart, not beautiful, but gosh, when she runs, when she does the things she's supposed to do, they're playful. If I can put it this way, it's levitas, lightness via gravitas. God is lifting Job up and he needs some weight to lift him up. God is zooming out for perspective and it's not the perspective of, hey, they got it worse than you in Africa. You know, since when did that ever work? You know, tr does that work? No, no. God is zooming uh, out to get Job's eyes up to God rather than down on the suffering so that his horizon is no longer filled with the pain. In fact, God is giving him new eyes, eyes I want. It's as if this section, God is saying, Job, I'm the same caring God now that I was then. And if I can craft a world that is more glorious than anything you can imagine, then I can craft your story in the same way. Or to use the words of Peter, Job humbles himself before God's mighty hand so that God can lift him up in due time and not a second before. He's got something to learn. Job casts all his anxieties on God because God cares for him. But God has more to say. He's not done. And so in this text, he says to Job, you're accusing me of injustice in this in instance. 40 verse 8, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Which, by the way, could be the subtitle of a Richard Dawkins book. God invites Job to consider all the damage done in the world through the proud and the wicked. And oh my, what damage. What damage. All the injustice, all the abuse, all the slavery, all the lies, all the regimes, all the oppression, and God says to Job, you feel oppressed, and I get that, you want to correct me, you want to say that I'm unjust, that I'm the bad one here, and that you're the good one, but, you know, seriously, are you above it all? 40 verse 9, do you have an arm like God's? No, you don't. And can your voice thunder like his? No, it can't. But if you think you have an arm like his or a voice like his, if you think you do, then verse 10, adorn yourself with glory and splendor. Clothe yourselves in honor and majesty, attributes that belong to the Almighty who clothes himself in majesty and power. We, by meeting God, clothe ourselves in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and, and patience. Job, if you think you get justice, you're a, you know, you're a 
justice warrior here, um, and you think, I don't, then verse 11, unleash the fury of your wrath. You do something about it. Look at those who are proud and bring them low. If you think you're the answer to world justice, then you bury evil in the dust together, shroud their faces to the grave. And if you can do all that, if you can stop the injustice in the world, then God says, I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you, but it can't. This is the premise of the movie Bruce Almighty. God is Morgan Freeman, of course, it's the voice. God says, if you've got a problem with me, Bruce, you're frustrated, that's Jim Carrey, of course. Let's see what the universe looks like when it bends to your will, your little will. And yet, of course, my private will, what I want to do with my life, self-determination, is at the heart of Australian secularism. Until you realise it cuts no teeth and you can't hold anybody responsible just by saying, look, this is what I believe to be true. And this explains, by the world, in my mind, why the world has become more fractious in the last 30 years. Uh, 30 years ago, and I realised there'll be people in the room that won't know uh, that time period, but I was at uni 30 years ago, and back then all the language was you couldn't judge someone's values. It was a value judgment, so you had to let it go. And uh, there was a lot of tolerance. Um, tolerance was a word people used. Now, of course, it's not only that you shouldn't judge someone's values, we're doing it all the time. More than that, you can judge their hearts. You can say why they voted the way they did. You know, it's because they're racist, you say, or whatever. Before, you couldn't judge someone's hearts. Now, we want to judge them because is there any other way to hold people to account in a world without God? Is there any other way to explain the outrage, the change that's taken place in the last 30 years? But there is a God who determines right from wrong and will judge the world. So the upshot of these seven verses is, come forward, you who think God is unjust, and tell me again how you determine what is just and unjust and how you plan to police it. Jeremiah 18, God says to humans, you turn things upside down, as if the potter, that's God, were thought to be like the clay, mouldable in my hands. Can the pot, that's Job, say to the potter, God, you know nothing? Because that's sort of, you know, that's close to what he's doing. So that's first. With respect to justice, are you an above and across it all? And the answer is no, you're not. With respect to fear, can you put a leash on what is most terrifying? The rest of our passage is consumed with two creatures named. God says, 40 verse 15, look at the behemoth which I made along with you. And then in chapter 41 verse 1, consider the Leviathan, can you pull the in Leviathan with a fishhook or tie down its tongue with a rope? So who are Behemoth and Leviathan? The first time I heard the word Behemoth was on The Simpsons. The Behemoth was a huge camper van that Homer coveted and could not afford. But it was big, that's the point. First time I heard the word 
Leviathan, uh, was in Philosophy 101 at university, where I spent two or three weeks uh, studying the 17th century thinker Thomas Hobbes, who wrote a book called Leviathan, and it's about the state, namely it is a beast. Some say Behemoth is a hippopotamus. Some say Leviathan is a crocodile. And that's in part because of the way it's read, especially in light of chapters 38 and 39. There is a minority reading that sees them as dinosaurs. Most likely they are Jewish mystical sea monsters and they share this fear of the monster with other ancient Near Eastern cultures. Did they believe in Behemoth and Leviathan? They may have, I don't know. But certainly they become classic objects of fear. You want to talk about what is ultimately fearful? You might use language like this. A way of talking about something that terrifies me, but not just me, all of us. Maybe the closest word we get to it today is boogeyman. <laughs> or in Russia, Baba Yaga you John Wick fans. The beast is our greatest fear, our, our greatest object of terror, the greatest symbol of the, of the worst of evil, and the point here is God tames them. That's the point. Pretty simple. Of the behemoth, 40 verse 16, what strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly, it's huge, 40 verse 19, yet its maker can approach it with a sword, swords which just bump off these creatures when they're in the hands of humans. You might be afraid of it, like the storm, like the sea. But God is bigger than they are, or bigger than behemoth. And the upshot, the mic drop moment from God, is one question to Job in 40 verse 24. Can anyone capture behemoth by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? No, they can't. The implication is... Humans can't save themselves from ultimate evil. I have evil and I have it on a leash. Of Leviathan, God says to Job, at the very end of the passage in 41 verse 33, nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It's king, it is king over all that are proud. So you worry about the those who are proud and wicked in our world. Well, Leviathan looks down on them and God has it on a leash. The descriptions here are long and terrifying. Uh, there's even fire breathing in them, which tells you that it's... I, I think that's the argument. It wouldn't matter if they were hippo, hippo and, and crocodile, but I think there's something deeper going on here, and lots of commentators say it. Maybe even like the defeated dragon in the book of Revelation. Look at the fire breathing in 41 verse 18. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like rays of dawn. Flames stream from its mouth, sparks of fire shoot out. You can't handle it, Job, 41 verse 8. You lay a hand on it, you'll remember the struggle, and you'll never do it again. And it's true not only for Job, who's one person, but anybody in the whole world, any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. And 41 verse 25, when it rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before its thrashing. The sword that reaches out has no effect nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin, bing, straight off him or her. Who knows? Verse 29, a club seems to it but a piece of straw. 
Perhaps I should have had a straw here as a prop. But the point is, God can defeat it, and God gets at this by asking Job a dozen beautiful, heavy and light questions to make his point. 41 verse 1, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook? Can you tie down its tongue with a rope? I can fish this thing and gut it before breakfast, and you're afraid of it. Can you put a cord through its nose and pierce its jaw with a hook, you know, a leash on it? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Please, 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 God, says Leviathan. Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? And my favourite of all, 41 verse 5, can you make a pet of Leviathan like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women of your house? You know, this thing that you're afraid of, I'm more powerful, I can leash it and then give it to your daughters as a pet. Your girls, you know, there's sort of humour here. Here's the truth. Every truly powerless person needs a higher power. Every truly powerless person needs a higher power. And if there's no God in the world, then, you know, we still need them and they'll be an advocate. Uh, it could be a friend or, or a lawyer, the government. We believe in higher powers when it comes to truly powerless people. And that works with smaller things and with a few items that you feel like you can fight. But what about the biggest terrors? The one that all humanity can't deal with? How about, for example, the sin within me? Let's call it behemoth. Who can defeat it? Who can save themselves? What about world injustice? What about death itself? Let's, you know, just for interest, call that Leviathan. In such circumstances, I don't just need a higher power, I need the highest power. God is the highest power. That's the point of these verses. A point made about Leviathan in Psalm 104, look it up. I think better still, Leviathan and oceans and seas are the same idea, that which I can't tame or control, that which I'm afraid of. Psalm 107 has this beautiful and poignant, relevant point about the storm. Psalm 107, verse 25, God spoke and stirred up a tempest and lifted high the waves. Psalm 107, verse 28, those who went on, out on ships cried out to the Lord, help me, right, in their trouble, and God brought them out of their distress. God stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Remind you of anyone? Jesus calmed the storm, the storm that the disciples were afraid of. Jesus is Yahweh in that moment, or at all moments, but certainly in that moment, proving that he's Yahweh. Calm in the storm. Compare Psalm 107. That is, Jesus is bigger, the, bigger than the storm. No wonder they were more terrified of who they had in the boat with them, even more than the storm. Paul met Jesus Christ late in his life, never too late. And Paul knew this when he wrote Romans 8. He suffered greatly, Paul, but he knew this in Romans 8. 
In all these things, we're more than conquerors, he says. And I'm looking for an amen after this. I'm going to say amen, and anybody who wants to say amen with me, you feel free. Paul wrote, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the future nor the present, nor the behemoth or the Leviathan, nor anything else in all creation, writes Paul, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? So what happens then if you meet this God? I believe that you'll meet the same Jesus who calmed the storm. But here's what happened to Job. To Job. He gets new eyes. In 42 verse 1, Job then replied to the Lord, humbled, he said, I know you can do all things. You're truly free. I thought you should jump to my tune, but you are truly free. I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. By the way, this is not, you can do it, so I'll cop it. If I can put it this way, this isn't the Islam's notion of in, inshallah. Well, God willed it. Cope with it. Now, this is something deeper. This is the freedom and the love of God, whereby you can take all my questions and all my doubts. You can take all my judgments against God. You can take all my fears, all my sadness, all my loss and disappointment, all my sense of entitlement that often comes with sadness, and they can melt away in God's presence. But not without the, the fight, you see. But here, in due time, that was Job's experience. So Job then has to respond to God. I will question you, will answer me. God first asks, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And so Job replies, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. I was hurting, I spoke about my pay grade. There were things too wonderful for me to know. God's, God sees A to Z, I only see P to Q. We all only see P to Q, but A to Z is wonderful, surely more wonderful for me to know. His plan may be from creation to new creation. The second thing is, since God has said, I will question you and you will answer me, Job replies, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Something happened to Job. You know, my ears had heard of you, I feared God and shunned evil and cared for the vulnerable, people said, you're a good person. But perhaps, who knows, a lot of it was in my head, you know, because of what I'd heard, because I went to church. But now, something new, but now my eyes have seen you. Have you had an experience like that? We can pray for you tonight. A moment where you saw for the first time, I know where I was when I moved from hearing to seeing, I wept as I sang the next song. Often that moment is true for someone who becomes a follower of Jesus. Therefore, he says, to conclude, I despise and repent in dust and ashes. The word myself is not there in the Hebrew. I something, a verb, related to the, to the word despise, and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, as I said, it's hard to translate in the Hebrew, um, but it's more likely something like, therefore I surrender, therefore I recant, therefore I give up my you are in the wrong mantra, I'm taking off the paper crown. 
That's what I'm despising or rejecting. Because God will say in a moment, you've not sinned. But he repents not of sin, but of his approach to God. I turn around and I do it in dust and ashes, in humility. Or maybe even in the Hebrew, it's hard to translate, I repent of the dust and ashes. In other words, it's time to get up again. What will happen if you meet this God? I believe that you'll get up again. I believe that you'll meet Jesus, risen from the dead, and you'll rise with him from the dust, certainly in the age to come, but maybe even in this life, in due time, Peter says. Perhaps it's time to get up again. You've suffered, and you're disappointed. And if you haven't or you aren't now, then this book will prepare you. By the way, who of your colleagues has such an ancient book to prepare them? David Atkinson wrote, if the nature poems of chapter 38 and 39, that's last week, speak to us of divine wisdom, Behemoth and Leviathan point us to divine power. But in God's hands, power is never coercive, but always creative. It is the New Testament which fills out the truth that the divine power is the power of love manifest in Jesus. You see, God has all the power. He has all the knowledge. He will destroy all evil and all injustice. He can take your greatest fears, our greatest fears, and tame them such that all our questions melt like mist. And he does that through the life and love and work of Jesus Christ. You see, there's so much that Job didn't get to see because he had no idea how the story was headed, how his individual story was going to fit into the larger one. He didn't know that God was going to come down, not in the terror of a whirlwind, but in the frailty of human being, that God himself would join the dust and the ashes and that one day Christ himself would lose it all, stripped naked, overcome by pain, pain that even Job never experienced, the wrath of God for sin. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But there's an answer to that question, and it's in that question that we find the answer to ours. God's speech shows in profound ways God's power, God's care, God's justice, God's victory, over evil, and each of these things is found in the life and work of the man who chose the dust and the ashes for us. He went there to bury the greatest fears. He rose again as the victor over injustice. This is our gospel. This is our help. And it is this word that we that is able to lift us out and up again. Here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we're lying to ourselves if we say that there aren't things to be afraid of. There are. And yet because of this word to Job, and because of the word of the gospel, we can hear the word of the angels. Do not be afraid. The Lord your God has come. He came to Job in a whirlwind. He com comes to us in a manger. The power that you have, and you have the power. You have the power to, to take away the evil and the injustice. And yet that power is always creative. It creates new life as you deal with our sin and our pain and our suffering. And you take us through the dust and onto the other side, through the death 
through death and onto a resurrection. And so we here now leave behemoth at your feet, Leviathan, which you have tamed, all the wrong that's in the world, all the wrong that's in our heart, all the, the death and the suffering, and we say, you are our God. This is our gospel. Help us, for Christ's sake. Amen.